welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. I swear to you, if Luther had had his way, I think he would have killed me. <laughs> Luther is the name of my friend's dog in high school. Uh, he was a Rhodesian Ridgeback. That's all I know. Um, and she had said, oh yeah, like we got this new dog and he's a bit unpredictable. <laughs> so one day we're walking over. It's the first time we've been over to their house since they got the dog, me and my friends in high school. And uh, it's a summer day and we're walking up the stairs to her porch. And it was a summer day, so the screen doors kind of open a little bit. And of course it's screen, so you can see through. And as we're walking up and chatting and I'm wearing my baseball cap, which I find out later Luther did not really like, especially doesn't like baseball caps. Luther is crossing the hallway further down in the house and he turns and he hears our voices and his body goes like this and his back gets like a torpedo and he starts running towards the screen, no, galloping towards the screen door. Everything in me wants to run the other direction, but I'm thinking I have a window right here. So I start galloping towards the screen door and I get there and slam it shut just in time. He comes crashing into the door. Some of you animal people are like, oh, was he okay? Was he okay? I thought I was going to die. We literally had this thing shut just in time to save us. From that day on, we called him Lucifer. That was his name. Now, my friend's dad, you know, kind of with a smile on his face, which I'm still convinced to this day, that is exactly the situation for which he got Lucifer in the first place. But he, uh, he said, well, I guess he's, uh, you know, we, we're, we're training him, but he's a pack dog. And so you can't ever quite get the pack dog out of the dog. Sometimes he might do things that what he would do in the wild, whatever that means. Now, um, you may not have a Rhodesian Ridgeback at home. You may not be an animal person at all. But every single one of us has a wild animal that as much as we try to domesticate or at times say, oh, we have domesticated it every so often or perhaps more often than we like, uh, displays its in the wild kind of way. (laughs) One of the writers of the scriptures describe it like that. All kinds of animals have been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a wild animal. It will always be in one sense wild, which means no matter how much we can manage and try and strategies, every so often it will go savage and it will say something. Words will come out of your mouth that will hurt and do permanent damage or sometimes even destroy something significantly. This is the reality for all of us as human beings. We all struggle to tame the tongue, which is why for the last several weeks, we've been in this series called Two Ears, One Mouth, The Anatomy of Healthy Conversation. Essentially, even if you've missed it all, or you've been here every week, and just in case you missed the forest for the trees, we're trying to engage these, our ears more, and our mouth less, to learn how to listen better, to learn how to ask questions more before making statements, to learn how to resist the urges we have to adopt the patterns of our family of origin, to be aggressive in conflict or to be defensive or to be passive or to be evasive. All of the ways that sometimes produce unhealthy conversations in our interpersonal relationships and as communities as we interact with each other in the world. 
We are trying to learn how to do this better. And hopefully over the last several weeks, you've gotten um, time to think and reflect on your interpersonal relationships with your loved ones, the way that you interact with truth in the world and saying this isn't just about or primarily about issues or ideology. It's about people and truth as a person that we begin with Jesus, that we resist the temptation to be baited into taking hard stances that end up hurting others. And what does it mean even as it relates to those who we would call our enemies? That's where we've been over the last several weeks. But there is one word that we have not used at all in these seven weeks, which we cannot not use if we're going to talk about what it means to create a revolution of healthy conversation. That is the word power. The word power. Not just because our words are powerful. We said that a couple of weeks ago. But because our culture is very concerned right now with power dynamics as it relates to our voice, our speaking. We are in a time where we are recognizing that there are those without a voice or who do not have power or those who have a voice but are not using it with power or those who have power and are using their voice destructively or need to use it less and allow others to take over. The redistribution of power is one of the most significant conversations that our culture is having right now. What's interesting about it is it tends to be or treat power like a limited or finite commodity. That in, in order for me to have power, I have to take it from somewhere else. Someone has to lose power or be disempowered in order for someone else to be em empowered or to have power. Which is why the power dynamics conversations create so much conflict. <laughs> because if I have power and you're trying to take it away from me in order to empower yourself or someone else, I'm going to resist it. I'm going to fight. I don't want to be disempowered. And so these power dynamics and these power conversations are very complicated. And they're perhaps the most important conversation we're having right now, the redistribution of power. And yet it's not so simple as saying, hey, these people who need a voice have to have a voice. These people who have a voice need to use it more. These people who have used it too much need to be taken away. Power is complicated because it would seem that even people without power have the ability to do damage to others. Even people without power can do damage to others. We know this, those of us who were bullied when we were younger are tempted to become bullies when we are older. Those who have been hurt can easily hurt others. One of my heroes, John Perkins, the civil rights activist in the United States, noted this about um, young white men who were recruited to be part of the highway patrol in the southern U.S. that ended up being um, kind of on the front lines of so much violence towards black people. He noted that one of the things that these young men had in their psyche was insecurity. They were deeply insecure. They were people who felt weak and powerless. And so the offer to carry a gun, to carry a badge, to drive a car, and to be able to stop anyone you like offered power to those who felt powerless. And in fact, they used it destructively. And so even those who are weak or powerless still end up doing damage to others. And secondly, we all assume that we will use power better than the people who had it before us. And yet that doesn't seem to be the case all the time. Ask anyone who's lived through a revolution in a second or third world country. Every uh, military or new coup promises to be better than the regime before it. 
and it rarely, if ever, is. Not to mention this, Scott McKnight in his book talking about power dynamics within religious and faith communities, he said the studies have shown that the more power you have or the longer you've been in a position of power, the more the part of your brain that is able to mirror someone else's emotions back to you, in other words, that is able to empathize with someone else, your ability to empathize with someone else, your brain's cognitive functioning that allows you to empathize with someone else actually gets diminished or gets impaired the longer you have power. Which means that any one of us, if we have power or hold it in a certain way for a period of time, will end up um, misusing it or even abusing it. And so power dynamics are complicated. I mean, I think what all of this tells us is that power dynamics are complicated and more complicated than we think. So perhaps as important as the issue of how we will redistribute power is these questions personally. Well, what am I going to do with it when I get it? What, and how do I know I'll use it well? What is my purpose for trying to gain power? Those that are get it in the redistribution of it. And how do I know I'll use it well? Because I can't just assume I'll be fine because everybody who went before me assumed the same thing. And see, friends, this isn't just about, you know, sort of the public sphere of politics or school boards or companies or how things work out there. This is a very personal thing. Because the fact is, in your marriage or in your family or with your parents or with your kids or with your friends or with us in the faith community or as we relate to the world around us or people who think and believe differently from us, these power dynamics are in play. These aren't just about politics and systems and institutions. It's about individuals. All of the conflict and the difficulty we have in our interpersonal relationships has to do with power in some shape or form. Those who feel weak, those who feel strong, those who are trying to not feel weak, those who are trying to take power away from others and the way we dialogue and interact and roles and responsibilities and all of that stuff. And so this has very much to do with our everyday life and our interpersonal relationships. And so we need help. And so every week we go to scripture and almost always we go to Jesus. Because as we said a couple weeks ago, Jesus is the new prototype the prototype for a new way of being human. He didn't just come to show us who God is in the flesh. He came to show us who we are, what it means to be human. And I don't know about you, but the world needs a new way of being. I need a new way of being, not just a few tips and tricks and try to, you know, uh, listen more and speak a little bit less and just behavior modification. I need to be a whole new person. And this is what is, this is the good news. If you're a Jesus follower or you're coming here because you're curious about what it means to have faith and what it means to be a Jesus follower, it's this, you get to become a whole new person. Jesus starts a pattern, a new way of being human that is for the Jesus community that ends up transforming the world into a new humanity. And we're going to read or listen to a passage and then talk about it today um, about Jesus and his relationship to power. It's actually part of this passage we know, we know now that it was repeated almost like a hymn in many of the first communities of Jesus followers in the first century. And it's a, it's a stunning uh, contrast to what we know. What we know and familiar with is if you feel weak, you're trying to, you hate feeling weak, want to get strong. Or perhaps you feel strong and try to use that strength and power for yourself. We see that with others. We see those who are just trying to get more power in some shape or form or promotion or just get the upper hand even in a conversation. Or we know what it means to lose power, have others try to take it from us. We're familiar with all of that. What we're not familiar with is this. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Before we kind of work through this passage together, on what Jesus' relationship with power was and what it means to us. I want to give you a chance just to talk with each other at our church. We like to talk in church. We like to talk during church. No one's going to give you the cut eye. Um, We're going to take a few minutes with each other. And just um, there's a portion of that scripture that will be on the screen for you. And I just want you to take a few minutes with each other and say, what um, words or ideas are Um, interesting, thought-provoking, or perhaps perplexing for you, even as you consider this passage. So take a few minutes together, and it'll be up there on the screen for you. You can look and just talk with the person near you about it.
See, it's, it's one thing to have power, to feel powerful, to be in a position or a title or a role of some kind of authority, or to just feel like you have the upper hand. It's one thing to feel weak, like you don't have power, like you are at a disadvantage, that um, others are using their power against you, or you're just at the wrong end of things, or you have no way to gain the upper hand, or you can't advance out of the situation you're in. It's one thing to want to have more power, to try to get rid of the feelings of weakness or voicelessness or inadequacy, to try to get ground or gain ground, to get more influence or more recognition, to just get to the place where we feel like we can use our voice. It's one thing to feel like others are taking it away from us or are disempowering us, taking away our position, taking away our role, firing us or surpassing us or silencing us in some way. But this... What Jesus did with power is a totally different thing altogether. And, and this unique relationship that Jesus had with power formed part of a hymn and a song that they used to sing to themselves and each other <coughs> to remind themselves of just how mind-blowing it was. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter to this uh, young community of Jesus followers, references three aspects of Jesus' relationship with power that are mind-blowing to us. The first one is this, he had it all. He said, Jesus who was equal with God. In other words, Jesus, the one that you saw, that you know, was equal with the Father. He had all the authority of heaven, all the power of heaven. There is no contest. Jesus was, he says, supremely powerful. He had it all. That's the first thing he says. No contest, no one above him. Equal with God. To be God is by definition to be supremely powerful. Omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, um, all-present. It's the first thing. He had it all. Secondly, he says, he chose to give it away. Jesus didn't just have it all. He chose to give it away. This isn't like, oh, Jesus, like if, if power was money, this isn't like, oh, Jesus was wealthy and he gave some of it away or he gave a lot of it away. He was generous. This is not generosity. This is something else. It says Jesus gave all of it away. The, the words here are actually used, it says he, he made himself nothing which is to say he chose, right? This is not something somebody did to him or somebody made him do or because someone was more powerful, they stripped him of power and disempowered him. He chose to give it all away. And it says he made himself nothing. An even better translation of that is he made himself empty. He emptied himself of all of the power, all of the, the royal title, all of the authority that he would have as being equal to God. He willingly chose to empty himself of it, to become, that's what this word, nothing, to have nothing inside him that was powerful. And it's interesting, one of the ways the writer that's part of this little hymn that gets repeated through the early church, says he, he took on the form of humanity or being made in human likeness or being found in appearance as a man. That word 
um, the appearance of a man, it does not mean, oh, he just looked like a human, but inside he was full of power, you know, like he's a god. It's like Thor, you know, I mean, he looks like a god, but no, he looks like, you know, like a human, but inside he's actually a god. It's not what this, the word actually is schema, the schema of a human. In other words, like the humanity, both on the outside, skin and bones and flesh, and on the inside, on his, his emotions, his heart, his inner life. He was, in a sense, completely human. That is to say, he had emptied himself of all of the divine power and authority that he had by being equal with God. He was human in every way. This is why some theologians call Jesus the self-emptying God, the one who chooses to empty himself of all of his power. So he not only had it all, he chose to give it away. And then he lived his life on earth without it. Now you may say, oh, no, Jesus has, did, did all these powerful miracles. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But think about all of the ways that Jesus actually chose to live his life as a human being without power. See, we could say that there would be relative power differences, right? So someone perhaps who living in North America who might be living very close to the poverty line, so not a lot of wealth, and maybe doesn't have status or a role or even perhaps a job, um, or perhaps doesn't have any kind of social power in one sense, here in this part of the world, if they move to another part of the world, they might actually have more power. Um, because even living at the poverty line here in North America, judging by how most of the rest of the world lives on one a few dollars a day, um, $20,000 a year would be far more than what most people have in another part of the world. So there'd be relative power differences. But Jesus did not adopt relative power differences. It was not like he left the power of heaven and he took on the power of earth, which was lower than heaven, but still really powerful. He did not come as a king of a nation. He did not come as a political leader. He didn't overthrow the empire and become the new Caesar. He didn't come as a priest. <laughs> He came as a baby in a poor family without real on any kind of education. Um, Jesus actually in every way became powerless, in every way became weak in how he lived. He didn't have, he didn't own land. He didn't even have a home. Never mind own a company or have any kind of title or position. In fact, people just kept saying, who is this guy? How is he doing all these things? He has no title or authority or power that this world would say, yeah, this is a person. And in fact, Isaiah says he wasn't even very good looking. He was, there wasn't anything about him that would make us go, wow, like look at him. He emptied himself all, this is not relative power differences. Jesus became nothing. And his relationship with power, living without it, drove his disciples crazy. Like, because he was always, anything powerful he did do, like basically, well, well, what it meant was as he, he came, he basically chose to live utterly dependent on God and to be a complete servant of everyone else. Utterly dependent on God and a servant of everyone else. And it drove the disciples crazy because he would use his power to help the powerless. Like he would use his power to help people that could never help him back. He would use his power to help people that nobody cared about. Okay, so you were making this blind person's life better or this person who couldn't walk from birth better or this woman's life better or these lepers' lives better. They were all cast-offs. They had no power and place in society. So to help them was to make no impact on the rest of the world. Nobody cared. 
And yet he seemed to save his miracles and power for all of those people. Drove the disciples crazy. Secondly, he seemed to be uninterested in power and the authority of other people. Like he, 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 he seemed to not pay any attention to who the important people were in the room. The time the disciples would want him to help this person or that person because they could probably help us later or they're wealthy or they have a, Jesus would ignore them. Or sometimes he would get them really angry with them. They were probably like, Jesus, you shouldn't get these people upset with you. They're the ones with power. They're the ones that can help you. They're the ones that can back you. You seem uninterested in the powerful. And the only time that you publicly claim to be the son of God is the one time you should have shut your mouth, Jesus right? When he's in front of the religious leaders who are trying him for blasphemy, basically saying he was equal with God. They're saying, hey, we heard you're kind of intimating this. Are you? The one time that he comes out and publicly says it is the one time that it would condemn himself. Jesus didn't just have all the power. He didn't just give it all away to become human. He lived his life on earth without it. But in so doing, he proved to us that power is not a finite commodity, where in order for me to have power, I have to take it away from you. Jesus, in all of the ways that he uh, gave his power away, he was multiplying it. Everywhere he went, his power was multiplied in the lives of other people. Many, many of the people who were weak were made strong. Many, many of the people who were sick were healed. Many, many of the people who were ignored and, and marginalized and cut out of their families who were social and religious pariahs were given new places and new standing in the community. Jesus, in giving power away, actually multiplied it everywhere. And then this passage says, and because of all that, God exalted him to the highest place. He en ended up becoming and holding the title Lord of all, even though he gave it all away. Jesus actually multiplied power. Friends, if you honestly take a look at history, especially if you're a skeptic, you're not quite sure about Jesus and the Christian faith and all of this stuff, you have to scratch your head a little bit to look at history and think, how is this possible? How is it possible that this man, Jesus, who basically only lived to the age of 33 and only really had three years of public life, never held office, never became an official priest, never became an official leader of any sort of movement when he walked on earth, never even had a home, never became an emperor, never held any kind of royal um, sort of role in the systems and the, the kingdoms of this world, never traveled more than 100 miles from home, was killed uh, in sort of in shame and public humiliation by the Roman Empire. Spent his life and his time multiplying his power with the powerless and the weak and people who had no role and had no importance, not influencing the influential at all. How is it possible that within a couple hundred years, the very empire that crucified him bowed to his name and began saying, you're right. Jesus, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is. And now, and since then, billions of people in every corner of the world have written songs about him and are singing about him even today. It isn't just the resurrection of Jesus that historically catalyzed this movement. You have to scratch your head and think, how is it possible that this guy who gave power away at every opportunity he had became Lord? It is mind-blowing. But friends, this isn't just about theology and history. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter and explaining this stuff about Jesus, the whole reason he's doing it is he says to them, in your relationships with each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This isn't just theology and history about who Jesus was. He says, in your relationships with each other, have the same mindset as Jesus. This is about our interpersonal relationships in the body of Christ, in the family of Christ, with other Jesus followers. Now you're saying to me like, oh, like it's, it's only about other people who follow Jesus that we're meant to have this kind of giving away power with? Well, yeah, because not everybody else in your life is a follower of Jesus. So stop expecting them to act like one, right? In these other relationships that you might have, if you're married to someone who isn't a follower of Jesus, or you go to school with people who aren't followers of Jesus, or you, like they haven't agreed to follow Jesus and to live this way. So stop expecting them to act like that. <laughs> It's with each other in the body of Christ where we said, you know what, we agree. Like, this is actually how we're supposed to live. We are supposed to relate to power in a different way because of who our Lord and Savior is, because of who the one we follow. Which is to say, your relationships with each other become a lab to experiment with this giving away power kind of thing. If you are two Christians, two Jesus followers who are married to each other, your marriage is a lab to experiment with what it looks like for you to give power away to your spouse. If you are in friendships with people who are also Jesus followers in our church or in your neighborhood, or in your school, these are labs for you to experiment. What does it look like for us to mutually give power away to each other? If we are in the family of Christ here, the family of God, brothers and sisters, Jesus followers, this is a lab. Our relations with each other are the way we experiment so that eventually, don't we want our, our other friends or teachers or CEOs or presidents or whoever to live like Jesus? Yes, but how are they gonna do that? They have to see it in the body of Christ. That's how we're meant to live it out with each other. And this is actually involves a shift. Instead of being powerful to empowering others. This is a shift to go from being powerful to empowering others. In other words, full of power or full of a desire for power or full of a want to, to have the upper hand or to win or to be right or whatever. It's a shift away from being powerful or full of ideas of power to empowering other people. This is the life of Jesus, which means like we move instead of looking for more power, I'm looking for people to empower, right? Instead of looking for more opportunities for me to get more power, I'm looking for others who I can give power to, who I can help, who I can strengthen. Instead of complaining about what I don't have in terms of power or voice or whatever, I give away what I do have to others. Instead of fighting to keep power, I freely lose it. I freely give it away. In fact, I'm figuring out, scheming for ways to give it away. Instead of hating my weaknesses and being obsessed with what I'm not and what I don't have, I try to strengthen others. This is the shift away from being powerful to empowering others. Now that sounds grand. That sounds like a big idea. That sounds like such a big concept. <laughs> Can I make it really simple for us and just break it down to something simple that you could remember that you could try to use in your relationships with each other as the apostle paul says it's just these words 
what can I do to help? What can I do to help? In all of your relationships, what can I do to help is a powerful, empowering question. Now, for you teenagers, I know you're not going to say that to each other. So here's, here's your words. Bro, you good? <laughs> right? If you ask your friends, you know, like, I don't know, I don't know what girls call each other. This is just, I have boys. So this hard, right? But what we're saying is, are you okay? How can I help you? What can I do to help? What can I do to help is such a powerful question. You know why? Because when you're saying, what can I do to help? You're recognizing I have something to give. I am able to give strength to others. I am able to use what I have to strengthen others. What can I do to help is a recognition that even if I feel weak, I can still make others strong. It's a powerful word because it actually validates the concerns and issues and stress of other people. When you say, what can I do to help? You are treating their concerns, their issues, their needs with validity. And you are actually giving them an opportunity to speak. You are inviting them to speak and you are saying, I would like to listen. How can I help? What can I do to help means I've heard you. I've already listened. And I'm asking another question to listen again. It is one of the most empowering questions we can ask in our relationships, in our friendships, in our marriages, in our families, in the faith community, and with the world around us. What can I do to help? Now, you may feel like, well, that's, that seems like a pretty simple question. In fact, that's an oversimplified question. Will that really do anything <laughs> as it relates to all of these issues of power? Will that really do anything in a world that seems so broken, so conflicted, so overrun with unhealthy conversations? We've been talking about this for these last seven weeks. Well, what can I do to help? Will that really change anything? <laughs> I mean, I suppose you could ask the same question about Jesus, who, as I said, never held political office, didn't even own a piece of property, never really started a movement with anyone of any importance or any influence, only really did lived significantly for three years in his public life, was killed in public humiliation and shame, and lived and chose to live in a really small backwater town, not in the center of religious or political life in Jerusalem or Rome. And he lived in the context of an empire that is the most powerful the world has ever known. You could ask the same thing. And in fact, you could ask the same thing about Jesus. Why didn't Jesus tear down the institution of slavery, which was the, their, their culture's greatest issue with power? That was, the whole Roman Empire was built on the institution of slavery that was holding them up economically. Why didn't Jesus tear it down? I want you to listen to what John Orberg describes happened in the first community of Jesus followers in the first century in his book, Who is This Man? He says this, in the ancient world, slavery was universal. It could happen to anyone and often did. Although conditions varied somewhat, slaves generally had little dignity or worth. A slave was non-habens personam before Roman law, literally not having a person or even not having a face. They were no ones. And yet, he says, in the early church, a slave might wander in and have one of the masters, one of the rich and powerful, get down on his knees and take a basin and towel and wash the feet of one regarded as a non-person by the law. 
Friends, Jesus' relationship to power and the way he gave himself and gave it all away and chose to live his life without it within a few hundred years literally toppled the empire that was held up by this institution of slavery. And many years down the road, William Wilberforce, Martin Luther King, and many others in the name of Jesus would end slavery. So don't ever diminish the power that a question, what can I do to help, can really have.